Husky football podcast on the entire internet and the official podcast of the Cody Pickett fan club. It's not just talk tonight because we're taking a step closer to realizing our dream of interviewing the real Cody Pickett. And we're interviewing his former coach, offensive coordinator, John Pettis. Producer Rob has an interview with coach Pettis later in the show. Before we get there, we're going to talk through the Oregon state game, upcoming PAC 12 action. And here to do all of that with me is Gaby Lucas. Gaby, how are you doing tonight? I am doing, that's the end of the sentence. No, I, uh, I'm doing good. I'm doing, I'm doing better than normal because we're real, realizing our dreams step by step. Yeah, you can't of, do it all uh, at once. I don't know. What are our dreams of, um, something about something giving Cody, Cody Pickett a high five? Yeah. I don't know. I think I need to solidify that. Yeah. Uh, Although that may be harder to do since this is all digital. But if we had met him in person, that would be even better. Well, let's talk about Oregon State. It was a weird win. We spent most of our preview last week discussing how Oregon State had the offense to give us us problems, especially the way our defense had been playing, but not really anything to worry about because we're going to score so many points that even their strong offense was going to be nothing to worry about. Uh, It didn't go that way at all. What was the turning point that turned this into such a defensive struggle on both ends? I don't think there was a single turning point per se. I to, also before we begin, um, can I say that was so boring? Like it, it was <laughs> just as a fan, as a fan of football as a concept. Like it wasn't even some good defensive slugfest. Really, it was just like a bunch of offenses shitting the bed. And, like, granted, to be fair, Washington's defense played really good, and Oregon State's defense, I suppose, played better than normal. But, like, oh, my God, the whole time. I, I oh, my lordy. that It was just so boring. But, anyways, um, yeah, I don't think, I don't necessarily think there was one turning point because the defense, for one, on the defensive side, they came out, like, looking good pretty immediately. And then the offense did the opposite pretty immediately and so it felt just like I don't know if 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 the offense was just kind of sleepwalking through this week or I I mean it's really nothing that I can provide any responsible commentary on because anything I would say would just be conjecture on on how they kind of came out looking so I don't know just like they were just shuffling along you know yeah well let's let's start on that defense you you mentioned that it was really impressive basically from the opening kickoff. And I think to me, the thing that was most impressive was how dominant and consistent the defensive line play was. We'd seen mm-hmm. stretches where we would get a couple of defensive linemen making penetrative, you know, getting across the line, creating havoc for quarterbacks. This was the entire defensive line doing it the entire game. I think you probably mm-hmm. circle the performances by Levi, Levi Onzerike and Joe Tryon, but Ryan Bowman was really good. Thule was really good. Do you think this is kind of turning a corner or was that just, they were able to physically overwhelm uh, the lesser Oregon state offensive line? 
I think it's probably a combination of both. I mean, like what I've talked about a bunch all year, like this is a really high variance team on, on defense because of how much turnover there was and how, how much youth there is at key positions, linebackers notwithstanding. Um, and then also, also the fact that, yeah, I mean, it's, you can't ignore the fact that UW has a talent advantage over Oregon State. But also, so do pretty much pretty much every team in the Pac-12 has a talent over advantage over Oregon State. Um, in fact, I'm sure every team does, and they still have played really well. So it's not like I I, it, I think it really should be emphasized that it's not like Oregon State's on offense. It's not like Oregon State is a bunch of total scrubs. I mean, Artavis Pierce and Jamar Jefferson are both really good running backs, just genuinely. Um, Isaiah Hodgins is a fantastic weapon in the, I mean, I think he was leading the Pac-12 in, in receiving yards per game. I might be wrong, but it was over 100. Um, and, and Luton is, a, you know, he's a good quarterback. So for them to talent that advantage, even taking that into consideration, I mean, that's, it still seemed like they were turning a corner in some way. And this is about the time of the year where, given the makeup of this defense where you would kind of expect to see that. Um, so I think it's probably a little bit of both. Um, yeah, is my gut anyway. I think that makes sense in terms of kind of turning a corner. I, although we've, we've been down this road with Tryon before where he's had a game or a couple games in a row where he looked like he was evolving into a more complete player, not just somebody who's going to, you know, beat a, a tackle a couple times and then struggle for the rest of the game. Hopefully this is, you know, we're not getting fooled again. That it, We can see him do this more often than not going forward because physically he's certainly the type of rush end that any team wants to have. And when he's performing at his maximum capacity, it changes the entire complexion of the defense. It makes the secondary better because the quarterback's under constant pressure. It makes the run defense better because he's strong enough to hold up the edge even when he's rushing the quarterback. So I, hopefully that's a real thing. Uh, and it's not just a one-off and, and to go with that, hopefully this isn't one of the last games we see Levi Onsarike because he is definitely an NFL prospect, but hopefully we do get to see him for a few more games uh, beyond this year. I, I wanted to step back a level, go to the, to the linebacking core, because I think the emergence here of Eddie Olafoshu was really significant. We saw him play a fair number of snaps against Utah, but it was, kind of that high variance play that you described where he made some really nice plays, but he was also kind of physically overwhelmed on a few plays. Is, is this somebody, he was a Pac-12 defensive player of the week. Can we count on him as a regular member, maybe even a starter in uh, the linebacking core for the rest of this year or maybe even next year? Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, this is me just predicting, so I could be totally wrong because I don't have any actual insight within the program. But, I mean, he was someone who, when you looked at what he was contributing as a walk-on true freshman last year, and then you look at the rest of how the linebackers have worked, it I, I was kind of surprised that he wasn't playing more in the rotation earlier in the year, to be honest, because of, of I mean, just everything that he had shown and everything that had been said about him as far as just being a, you know, a quick learner and a, and a player who you can depend on. Um and yeah, I think, I mean, obviously this is a really small sample size, but I would, it just felt, it felt like the defense trusted him and Jackson Sermon more than they trusted Wellington and Manu um, in the past. And just in that, and I, 
I feel like I keep saying this, that of course it is speculation. I'm not in their heads, but they, the rest of the defense looked like they were just doing their own jobs instead of trying to maybe overcompensate for that kind of gaping hole that had been in the middle most of the season um, with Uluposhio. And granted, to be fair, they still have a, especially a servant has a really long way to go, but they're also like 19, <laughs> like redshirt freshman. That's to be expected. Um, but yeah, I, I have a good, pretty good gut feeling about this too, especially Lafosio. One thing I noticed about both of them that contrasts with some of the performances we've seen from the linebackers through the year is when something didn't work or they made a mistake or, or Oregon State just found something to exploit. It happened once or twice, not 15 times in a row. It wasn't consistently yeah. hitting the wrong hole uh, against the run. I remember specifically there was a play late in the first quarter where Luton uh, basically just found the soft spot in between uh, the 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 linebackers had cheated up too far in the zone, and he was mm-hmm. able to make an easy completion on it to convert a first down. And it was clear that the linebackers needed to drop back a little further. And there were about three more times he tried to make that pass through the game, mostly to Hodgins, and it just wasn't there. They corrected the mistake, which is a breath of fresh air. It's something that the defense was really good at in past years, and we just hadn't really seen a lot of that through the year this year. Uh, and, and I guess that that also goes to the credit for the secondary as well, which is one of the better secondary games of the year. I think they you know probably give credit for the USC game due to degree of difficulty, but McDuffie, Taylor, and Molden all did some really nice things in this game, including Molden getting the interception at the end of the first half, which is only the second interception Luton has thrown all year. So it wasn't, it, it, like you said earlier, this is a, an Oregon State team that's found success against other teams and a UW defense that has struggled against other teams and somehow they, they lined up and kind of went in opposite directions. Yeah, and also I think it's worth noting that, like, if you, yeah, like when you're talking about Sermon and, and Ilfosio, yeah, there was a couple mistakes, but then they kind of corrected them a little bit faster, which is kind of to be expected of, I mean, not to be expected that they're going to necessarily learn that quick as really young players, but if you're getting guys who are red shirts, you know, who are seniors, red shirt seniors playing inside linebacker or anywhere for that matter. I mean, they've been in the program for so long. If they're still doing that, they're probably not going to be learning to not do that really quickly versus, yeah. I mean, you have red shirt freshmen that are so much closer to their floor than their ceiling that like you expect that, that improvement mentally, physically, etc. So yeah, I think, I think that's a good, like just a really significant point that you just made about both their learning and kind of how much quicker they adapted. Yeah. That's why the saying is that fool me 246 times. Shame on me. <laughs> yeah. Fool me. Whatever. Uh, there weren't, it wasn't all uh, rainbows and sunshine in this game. You mentioned earlier offensively things just didn't click. I, there were some things that worked reasonably well. I, you know, Savan Ahmed continues running the ball really well. Uh, we didn't end a lot of the drives where he was moving the ball down the field, but at least having him kill clock in the second half was a really important part of maintaining the lead that the defense allowed us to build. Uh, he was great, but the passing game was just very disconnected the whole, whole night. Was this something you'd put on Jacob Eason? Is it, I mean, there were certainly some more drops. There were some questionable decisions, but to my eyes, it looked like this was more of a game I would put on Eason's shoulders he wasn't under all that much pressure. 
He continued to make curious decisions in the pocket. He threw the same interception he threw the week before against Utah on that out pattern where he just missed the uh, defensive back making a play on it. Were you seeing the same thing? Was this kind of something that looked like uh, a, a game where Eason wasn't as mentally strong or were there more variables in there that, that I was missing? Um, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Definitely to an extent. I don't think it was, a, I think, I don't think the struggles in this game offensively or in the passing game anyway, I feel like were a culmination of the passing game's struggles throughout the year mentally on Jacob Eason is kind of what it looked like to me. I mean, it really felt like he was pressing a lot. Um, and you know, you can't, I mean, you know, you're not, you're not going to do stuff when you're not going to be successful when you do that. I mean, just plain and simple, um, especially because it, it looked like with the amount of deep shots he took that were, I think it was zero for five um, on balls that traveled more than, I don't know, 30, however many miles or miles uh, yards in the air. <laughs> um, it, it, when there were guys kind of open in the, in, in, or at least more open or higher percentage catches, um, closer and it just kind of felt like he felt desperate and I mean that kind of sucks already and then his th- his accuracy just seemed a little bit off um just in general uh and it wasn't it kind of other than the pick six there wasn't any huge glaring terrible things that he did it was just these little margins of error that were over the course of the game were just there all the time. So I think it was mostly just these little things adding up to basically make your offense completely non-existent in the passing game. And obviously uh, the receivers were very useless. I mean, (laughs) I I wish I could be more diplomatic about it, but when you look at the separation or lack thereof that they were getting and like Andre Bocelli having that one ball hit him in right in the hands and he drops it for what would have just been a walking into the end zone. Um, And yeah. And and also a bunch of mistimed jumps. And so it just seemed to me like some stuff that we've seen already with the receivers and then Easton just being off. Um, The one good thing was that the offensive line Unlike against Stanford, they actually held up their end of the of the deal. Uh, but yeah, that was kind of my my gut reaction to that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. That it, it was kind of an accumulation of the different factors that we saw through the year that have made the passing game struggle. I don't really blame either Eason or maybe it's Bush Hamden for continuing to try these deep passes. We knew that was a vulnerability for the Beaver defense. We discussed it last week, statistically proven over the course of the year. And you don't need to complete a bunch of these to make it worthwhile. If they hit one of them, it kind of makes the five or six attempts even out as as good play calls. And they were very close on several of them. You mentioned uh, the Bocelli one, and there were others that just seemed like if the receiver made a play on the ball, it would have changed it. A lot of ways it could have gone differently. But, yeah, I think you're probably right that at some point, even if the defense isn't getting pressure and even if uh, the drops weren't as pronounced as they have been in some games, that's going to cumulatively take a toll on Eason's confidence in what he's doing. He doesn't believe that he's going to have enough time to let a play develop or he doesn't 
have the, the trust to lead a receiver to make a, a difficult catcher and so on. So that, that's a, that's a, a tough place to be. And hopefully I, I guess in that sense, it's a good time for the bye week because he gets an extra week of practice to get back in sync. And maybe they can, uh, you know, focus on the things that are going well, running game, play action, passing, um, kind of the emergence of Terrell Bynum, even though he also made a couple mistakes in the game. But there are things to focus on going forward, I would say, that that give me hope that the offense, this isn't going to be the new normal for the offensive performance. Yeah, same. And I think what's so weird to me, though, is just that how how well they played relative to, to the opponent against Oregon and, and Utah, uh, even mm-hmm. if they weren't necessarily super consistent, and then to come and kind of lay an egg against Oregon State, of all people, like, it, it just se- it seemed like they were, I don't know if they weren't taking Oregon State seriously as a defensive opponent. I hope, on one hand, I hope that's not the case because that's not something you want a team to do, to do. But then on the other hand, if they were really trying and they only scored 19 against Oregon State, like, <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's also, I'm... I mean, the, the Friday night thing is weird. It's the game after yeah. playing Utah, which you always hear as a complaint. They're going on the road after playing a couple games at home. There are a lot of little excuses you could you could make that, that kind of maybe all add up to something valid, but it, it wasn't a good offensive performance. And like you said earlier, it wasn't an exciting game. It wasn't particularly fun to watch, but at least it was something, you know, I, I'll put it this way. There was a late game, and when it ended, I just went straight to bed. I, I didn't need to unwind. I wasn't upset. I didn't need to clear my head. I was just like, okay, that's over. I'm just going to go straight to sleep. Yeah. And I think I was asleep within about 15 minutes of the final whistle. So that yeah. probably says a lot about kind of the, the mental state at the end of the game. It was just so, like, even though, I guess, other than after that pick six where there was a moment in my brain of, of uh, being like, uh-oh. I don't, yeah. I don't feel good about this. Other than that, though, even though the offense played like garbage, frankly, uh, outside of Ahmed, obviously, uh, I, there wasn't really a moment where I felt like Oregon State was really going to come do anything other than maybe at the end of the half or after the half, uh, just because that's how halves work sometimes. So just because the defense was so dominant, but so it was this weird combination of boring uh and even and uninspiring and just just it was oh man as a fan of this sport it was just so boring <laughs> I, I love the dogs but oh well that's probably as good a reason as any to uh stop talking about the game uh we're going to take <laughs> a quick break uh well we've probably dedicated more time to that game than it deserved But there is no game this week, so we needed to fill some time, and that's what we've done. Uh, We'll come right back. We're going to talk a little bit about games through the rest of the Pac-12 and the rest of the country, and also the interview with former UW offensive coordinator John Pettis. So stick around. We will be back in just a couple minutes. Thanks for sticking with us. We're going to now talk a little bit about the rest of the Pac-12 and some of the rest of the premier games in the country. We spent some time last week on the two matchups of 8-0 teams for the first time in a million years. And they actually both deliver. They turned into pretty good games. Uh, Penn State lost at Minnesota, where our producer, Rob, who's getting a lot of shine on this episode, was in attendance at TCF Bank Field in beautiful Minneapolis. And LSU, to everyone's delight, uh, held on to beat Alabama in what was a much higher scoring game than anybody expected. Uh, Gaby, what were your, did you get a chance to, to watch these games? What were your thoughts 
uh, on the Saturday action after the aforementioned boring Friday uh, Husky action? I, I, I hate and love what my answer to this is, which is that for the first time in any Saturday during the fall, I can remember, I didn't watch any football. I was oh, wow. just so, I was, yeah, well, for one, I had to drive to Bremerton to drop off of, off of base because my life is exciting. But, um, but I just, it was so, after, after how boring uh, the Oregon State game was, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to relax. I'm not going to watch sports. They're exhausting. <laughs> Even though I, oh, wow, sorry, I just saw a really good block on the UW game. Basketball. Okay, anyways, focus. Back to what were we talking about? Oh, yeah, I didn't, I, I saw like a little bit of, a little bit of replays and, and just reverse engineered via people's reactions on Twitter what happened. Uh, but, oh, I, it's just as far as the shakeup of the power structure for mostly for the LSU and Alabama game. Cause I mean, Minnesota, I don't think they can accumulate the talent um, over the course of many years and stuff to, to really necessarily stay at a very high level. Although I would be happy if they could. Um, but just to see what this LSU Alabama relationship means going forward um, over the next handful of years, I think, I think that's just so much more interesting than, how the SEC has been the last forever where it was just Alabama and a bunch of people or people, a bunch of programs that kind of were good in some aspects and terrible at others. You know, I mean, that's how LSU was for so long. They were really great at defense and then they just ran, they just played Marty ball and were just run, run past punt. And it was pretty boring. Um, so yeah, I just, I got bored with Alabama as did everyone else. And I think, I think, I don't know. I think this makes, this makes football way more interesting. I agree with that. I think you may be able to reduce it to the Joe Burrow effect. And as good as uh, Edwards Alaire was against, I've never seen in the Nick Saban era a running back just shred them that way. Never, not not for mm. a quarter. And LSU did that. It's it seems like in the past there when they have had tough games, it's been running quarterbacks who just kind of get loose. I mean, the, the, the Texas A&M with Menzel one is pretty famous. And I think Chad Kelly did the same thing yeah. for Ole Miss one year. And Deshaun yeah, Watson. Well, Bo Wallace did, Bo, yeah, did yeah. the same with, with Ole Miss too. Uh, but this was not that. This was just, we're going to line up and, and we're a better, we can block your defensive lineman better than, than anybody else yeah. has. Um, some of this probably, this is a particularly youthful Alabama defense. This is not the best vintage of this team that they've had the last few years. And they've gotten by with uh, better offensive performances because of that. Uh, but it'll be interesting for me to see whether uh, LSU can maintain that when Joe Burrow is gone. Because in the past, like you mentioned, it was pretty easy to just line up eight, ten, eight, eight or ten guys in the box. <laughs> And yeah. dare them to try to, you know, dare Jamarcus Russell to pass over you. Yeah. And he was one of the better ones. Um, I, I think it'll be interesting, uh, the Minnesota front, you mentioned that it's going to be tough to build uh, that talent base. It does seem like Fleck is a good recruiter, like a really, really good recruiter. Yeah. Uh, it's going to take sure. more time, obviously. This is, they won the game, so they're capable of winning the game. That's very <laughs> hard to argue. Yeah. But on the other <laughs> hand, I think this is probably, in the past, a game Minnesota would win uh, one in 50 times when they were playing Penn state. Now it's a game that can win like one in three times and they hit yeah. in this one. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if flex stays 
and whether he can continue building the talent base uh, to, you know, he's he's still new enough coach there that this isn't this a lot of his players, but it's not even a majority of his players yet. It's going to take more time uh, for, you know, to grow in the upperclassmen. And, and as we've seen with uh, Peterson's success at UW, kind of elevate the level of talent recruiting, hopefully over a few years and, and it kind of stabilizes a little bit better there. I don't know if that's going to happen. My bet would be that Flex not there in two or three years, but could be wrong. It'd be very interesting to see that. Yeah, I think um, just one last thought. I do think you're, you're, you're probably. My gut is he he won't be there for super long, just because when you look at really good programs or not really good quote unquote, but just programs with a crap load of money. I mean, yeah, my gut is that eventually he'll get drawn away from Minnesota. Um, and and yeah, I think I think the main thing is is they're at a point now where they are. He's a really good coach and he's a good recruiter, um, and so they've turned around quick enough where in small sample sizes, they can beat really good teams like Penn State. But yeah, I think so that if there's any Minnesota fan listening to this who feels like I have just uh, insulted Minnesota's honor or whatever previously, uh, I think right now it's just with with the the talent discrepancy that you have at Minnesota versus Michigan, Penn State, Ohio State, uh, etc., that when you play these large sample sizes of over the course of a, of a program's history, it's, I, I, it's, it, I, it's going to be interesting to see if they can increase that because where they are now over large sample sizes, I mean, that's rough. I eat for as good as Boise state was when Chris Peterson was there. If they played Oklahoma every game, they you know, it wouldn't, most right, of them yeah. wouldn't have ended up like the festival. Um, and obviously Minnesota is a power five, but they're still since the sixties any or since the end of the sixties, they're still at a pretty big disadvantage in many ways. And things yeah. don't get easy for them either because they play uh, they play for the Floyd of Rosedale, the battle for the Floyd of Rosedale against Iowa this week, which will be a difficult game. They have Northwestern following, and I think they wrap up with Wisconsin the week after that. I'm, I may have that last yeah. game wrong, but it's one of the elite teams in the Big Ten. And then obviously if they hold up through that, they're probably going to be playing Ohio State in the conference title game. So it's not going to be easy the rest of the way. Um, although interesting that that Floyd of Rosedale game probably is the maybe the marquee game of this week. Uh, the other two being Wake Forest, Clemson, and Navy Notre Dame, which just for like pageantry and weirdness might be the most fun ranked versus ranked game to watch. But anyway, a related question. I was going to. I'm going to. The Huskies are on a bye, as is Colorado, our next opponent. The other ten teams, the conference, are all playing each other. So there are five Pac-12 games this week for the first time in a few weeks. Which of these games, if you're only going to watch one, would be most appealing to you and why? So we've got Stanford at Washington State, Arizona State at Oregon State, UCLA at Utah, Arizona at Oregon, and USC at Cal. Okay. I think my first reaction for the reasons that you don't typically pick a game to watch is Stanford and Wazoo. Because it's just going to be, in my gut is that that's just going to be a cluster of mediocrity. And you know what? It, it's not going to be good football, but it is going to be equal football. And that makes for some really fun games. It is indisputably, <laughs> without a doubt, football. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'd rather, I'd rather watch two mediocre teams trying to figure their shenanigans out than one mediocre team get their ass kicked by who cares. Um, I think the other one, I think USC and Cal 
will be. I think that'll be pretty interesting. I agree. I think if I was picking, that's probably where I would go just because, uh, you know, there's there's some historical bad blood between them. Uh, Chase Garber looks like he's going to be back. Cal came off a pretty surprising uh, win last week where they, they put up a lot of points against Wazoo and didn't give up very many. So, I, I mean, I guess neither of those things are overly shocking when you just look at the way Wazoo's been playing. But I, they had 33 points after not scoring more than 17 in their last five games. So, it, and, you know, if they're on track, they're the type of team that they have the secondary who could give USC's receivers some trouble. They can play ball control and, and kind of frustrate them. Slovis has been turnover prone lately. It could be an interesting game. I'm a little bit interested in UCLA-Utah to see whether this surge from UCLA is legit, if they can mm-hmm. hold up offensively against the best defense in the in the conference. My guess is no, <laughs> they can't at all. Probably I think, not. <laughs> uh, and I think Utah will score a bunch of points on them. So uh, yeah. we'll see about that. It'll be interesting. But uh, I, I think I, I would probably not watch Stanford and Washington State. Uh, sorry to say, I oh. think that's – uh, but somehow, try to explain this to me. I agree with your analysis of that game, that it's just like a slugfest of mediocrity, but Washington mm-hmm. State's favored by 10.5 points. Like, I, I don't see the logic in that one. Um, two things. One, slugfest of mediocrity. I'm not, like, a huge fan of death metal or any metal. I don't know the different subgenres of metal music, but slugfest of mediocrity would be a great band name for some metal band. Also, we should have named this podcast that. Anyways, the actual question, oh, how is Wazoo favored by 10? I think yeah. I think that'll probably drop down to like six maybe by the time the, right? Don't you think, I just think, I can kind of see that. I, I can see why they would be favored by a bit because I feel like they've been a little bit more cohesive. They've just been kind of outmanned at times over the course of the season. Does that do you do you think that's right or am I am I reading that wrong? That could be. And I I was trying to dissect this a little bit, and they had this like uh, recent history with both teams have recently played Colorado and and Stanford lost and Wazoo blew them out. Maybe that's impacting it. Or I'm curious about the rest of the season for Wazoo just to see if I I, it, I, I question whether that backbreaking loss to Oregon in the last minute was just kind of the team saying, all right, that's enough. Like Mike Leach seems like he might have one foot out the door. He's like openly campaigning for other jobs that are coming open through presumably his agent or publicist or something. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and the team in the last game played horribly defensively against a very poor Cal offense and committed a whole bunch of penalties and they were sloppy. And I, it seems like they might have just kind of moved on collectively this season, but it'll be interesting to see whether that's the case. I could be completely wrong about that. There's no way to know for sure. Yeah. Uh, about I feel the like psychological a, part, but it can happen. Yeah. I feel like as a as a program, they're always really hard to read. Just part of it because Mike Leach is hard to read, but also their history under him. I mean, like the two times in a row where they open or lose their season opener to an FCS opponent and then everyone writes them off and then they go on and kind of kick ass the rest of the year. It, or the amount of times that Mike Leach has seemed like he's had his foot out the door and with, with the Tennessee, like the, um, yeah. after Butch Jones was fired, who else? I, I forget. I mean, there's been so many times that it's kind of, at this point, I never like to make any predictions on them either being out of it or Mike Leach being gone. Uh, it's even funny. though I, he could, this could very well be the time where that happens. 
I have taken to uh, looking every week whenever uh, somebody gets the new head coach gets fired. This week it was uh, Morris at Arkansas. Just go in, yeah. in Twitter and search Leach Arkansas, and inevitably <laughs> there's some uh, blue check mark person who's speculating that he is indeed a candidate for the job. Which yeah. you know it would happen with Florida State, it happened with Arkansas, like you mentioned Tennessee. It'll probably keep happening, uh, and he'll probably end up somewhere else. It seems like he's getting a little. Uh, skittish or cabin fever or I don't I don't know maybe I'm completely yeah. wrong about that. we'll see he, yeah yes he's not there next year I don't know if I would put I think he if I had to put money on it I would say that he will be at Wazoo I mean um, next year but who I, who knows I don't know I think he's just really hard to read and um, but yeah I think he still will be well, I'm gonna regret this is gonna yeah, we'll end up on let's turn it in a different direction we've i mentioned earlier we had the podcast that our producer rob fox Kern conducted with former uw offensive coordinator also arizona state offensive coordinator uh former high school head coach he's been all over the country cal poly and i think he he played at cal poly when they went to a bowl game which is weird to think about but rob interviewed john pettis so we're going to kick it to that so Rob, take it away, and we'll meet you back on the other side to uh, say goodbye and give some of our recommendations and plugs. Welcome to the All We Hear is Purple podcast. I'm Rob Foxkern, and today I am interviewing the great uh, coach John Pettis. He was offensive coordinator at the UW in the early 2000s, and prior to his time at Washington, he was the offensive coordinator and coached in several other positions for Arizona State, as well as Louisville, the San Francisco 49ers, and Nevada, just to, just to name a few. Coach, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for calling. It's been a while since we spoke. Since, uh, since the days I coached you at Roosevelt High, you left that out. I coached at Roosevelt High. It's true. It's true. Not to... Uh, I mean, I don't want to imply that it was probably the highlight of your coaching career. But, um, <laughs> it was. Trust me. It was good. Yeah, go Rough Riders. Yeah. They, they did big things uh, in the, what, my senior year back in 2008, we were 4-4. and four, And then you kind of took over the offense more the following year when you, you, you transitioned to like the the wing tee out of the shotgun or something like that? Yeah, well, I didn't, I didn't do it. I just kind of advised the coaches what to do. So I was more coaching the coaches as well as coaching the, the players. But, uh, no, yeah, we became pretty good. Got to the playoffs a couple times and all the way to the final eight a couple times. Yeah, and they're doing good. They still send me film from Coach Kiyoshi and a few of the guys. They still send me video of what's happening. But, uh yeah, those were fun times for me. I ended up coaching there 10 years. Go figure. Wow. Long time. That's I think awesome. I started with your year. So, uh, yeah. So it was fun. But I know they don't want to hear about Roosevelt football. They want to hear about the Purple Rain. So, Yeah, well, uh, well said. Um, as much as I'm sure people love talking about Seattle Public High School football, um, we, can, <laughs> we, can, we can get into it. Um, yeah, there you go. So uh, some questions we had for you lined up. Sure. First one we wanted to ask is, uh, do you still watch a lot of football? Yes, I do. Yeah, it's Saturday and Sunday are football days for us still. Uh, my wife and I, who have retired back down to Arizona, um, we always say we love football season. Even uh, as, much of, as much of it was a strain for her in all those years I coached, being gone and having to move, she still loves to watch it. So we'll get up, watch game day, 
have some coffee and then uh, kind of pick and choose our games. And if there's enough good ones, we'll watch them all the way through uh, Pac-12 at night. That's for sure. So, yeah, we try and keep an eye. And I still know a few people out there coaching. So uh, these days, a lot of times I root for coaches I know more than teams I know. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, it's fun. I, I still love watching football. Watched the Seahawks last night. Still still close to the Seahawks and have some friends coaching there. So always rooting for the Hawks. So That's awesome. Go Hawks. And it, it, so yeah. it sounds like you, you still watch a healthy amount of both college and the NFL game. Oh, yeah. I, I watch both. Yep, 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 yep. I, it's in my blood, I guess. So, and everyone – I even get out to some Friday night high school games, get out there and watch some local football just for the fun of it, just to get out of the house. So, Heck yeah, Coach. There's, a good, there's some good football down in Arizona. I know the Huskies have oh, yeah. had, uh, more than a few quality yeah. players from, from down there in the last few years. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of quarterbacks coming out of here for some reason. So, so um, totally fair, uh, given you, you have some divided loyalties here. Uh, we know that you spent, <laughs> you spent a lot of time down in the desert coaching at ASU on some pretty awesome uh, – Arizona State teams. Did you did you coach Jake Plummer? Am I? Yes, I did. Yeah. Yes, I did. Yeah. There you go. We, we um, just had a big weekend for him this last weekend. They had a big uh, celebration for him Friday night and Saturday at the game, and a lot of us got to go. And he invited all his teammates and coaches. Uh, he is going in the College Hall of Fame this December, so they had a big. Uh, special weekend for him down here at Arizona state. Um, and, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun because I got to see a lot of the kids I coached, uh, you know, 20 some years ago, it was, it was fun seeing them all. And he being the, the typical Jake Plummer that he is, he made sure he didn't go out there in the middle and get, uh, get recognized by himself. He wanted all his teammates and everybody there with him because he, as he put it, um, he's just the face of them. He's going in the Hall of Fame as them all together. They, they made him. So um, it, it was fun to see and exciting to see a lot of people. And Jake's just a great guy. So it's uh, good to see him get that, uh, those awards and stuff. Every good quarterback knows to give props to his offensive line, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, he's surrounded by his old linemen. It, it, it was fun to see. It was fun to see. Well, so awesome. I got to tease a few of them. Some of them, some of them lost weight. Some of them gained weight. So I made sure they knew. <laughs> oh man! Well, that sounds yeah. like an awesome event. Um, yeah, it was a great day. Great thing. So uh, speaking of ASU, when when the Huskies play the Sun Devils, uh, wh- where does your heart lie? Who are you rooting for in those games? <laughs> well, I'm going to be honest. I try and stay as neutral as I can. Uh, I. I uh, I kind of, I kind of got a little leaning towards Arizona State, maybe because I was there longer, and uh, and uh, had a little bit more success there than I did at UW. But uh, I try and stay neutral. I know when we first, we actually moved here two years ago. Our first home game, one of the first home games Arizona State had, was against UW. <laughs> so go figure, right? I ended up hosting you know, uh, a handful of my old buddies from the neighborhood, from UW, they all came down Friday night. And we all thought for sure at that time that UW was just going to steamroll Arizona State. And lo and behold, Arizona State upset them. Uh, So needless to say, I didn't see any of my UW friends after the game, but 
but we did exchange that. But I try and stay neutral. I, again, like I mentioned, at this stage of the game, uh, I know how tough it is. So uh, I kind of root for for coaches, you know, friends of mine that that have coached. So I think in that game, I was kind of dead split down the middle because I had friends on both staff. So I don't know about the, these coming coming games, these coming years, Herman. Herman Edwards down here at Arizona State went to high school with me. He was a few years younger than me, so I got a little bit of hometown hometown blood going there. So, but we'll see. I, you know, UW is doing pretty well. Central California coast is that right? Yeah, Monterey. We grew up in Monterey. He, I think he went to school with my little sister, so he's about four years, five years behind me. So, but we knew each other. We knew each other well, and it was one of those small towns where you kind of know know the history and they know the people before you and after you. So that's awesome. it was good. I had no idea. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's kind of fun. So now you're talking about coaching a little bit. Um, so I'll transition into my next question, which is what are the, what are the biggest differences and similarities in offensive philosophy uh, from when you coached until now? Well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I got kind of pet peeves to pick. You know, I, I, I see what they're trying to do. Everybody's spreading the field and think that's the way to go. No huddle, you know, fast pace. But, uh, you know, I just don't – I'm going to be honest. I, I'm not sure if I see all the great coaching going on um, that I would hope to see at that college level. You know, I see some good coaches, really good coaches, but a lot of times you see mistakes being happened and, uh, you know, uh, the way they manage either the clock or a lot of mistakes being made by kids. And as uh, I watched the TV special the other day, and it kind of reminded me of some saying we used to have, but uh, Mike Leach has it going throughout the Cougar Nation, is uh, if, if, if the kids are making mistakes, you're either allowing it to happen or you're coaching it to happen. So... Uh, I just would like to see a little bit more sound fundamental football. You don't see as, as, as good at tackling and blocking the old fundamentals, you know, you, you block and you tackle. That was the old days. And whether it was, uh, three tight ends and everybody high diddle diddle full back up the middle, just running straight ahead or what they do now, you still have to block and tackle. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I just keep looking that eventually it's going to come back around again and, the teams are going to go back to more fundamental football and not try and play basketball on turf, I guess. So I like, I like that's the, the biggest thing I see. Yeah, no, um, it makes perfect yeah. sense. Yeah. The, I, I know Husky fans especially can feel this season with the, the shocking number of missed tackles. This yeah. otherwise historically very good defense has been putting together is a, a yeah. bit upsetting to say the least. Yeah, you know, they're playing well both sides of the ball other than those type of things, you know, drop passes. You know, you got you got skilled guys, catch the ball. You know, that's their job, and they just got to be more fundamentally sound, protect Eason, and uh, tackle when they get a chance. And you just don't see it. And I think um, you don't see it as much, I don't think. And I think Pete and his staff do a wonderful job. They're probably some of the better coaches out there right now. Um but it's just not happening, and I don't know. I don't know why. I'm not there every day, so I. I don't like. I don't want to criticize or say they're doing it wrong because they're probably not. But um, because they're really good coaches. But um, uh, you know, just if for some reason or another, it's just not being um, 
correlating into the right thing, I guess. So along those lines, I would love to get your take on, on what you think this UW offense needs to do to, to turn the corner for the rest of the season and beyond. Well, I, I think I, I, uh, I'm guessing it's the same thing. A few things that, that I've noticed, which, again, like I say, I, I've only seen a ha- you know half of their games. Maybe I don't watch them all the time. Like I, I didn't even know they were playing Friday night and I missed the dang game against Oregon State, but they played pretty good. But again, they didn't move the ball. And I think the biggest thing is identity. And that happens quite a bit with, with a lot of teams that had a quarterback that plays for four years. You have a guy that starts for four years, you get a new guy in, and everything just a little bit out of sync. You know, you're not sure what your identity is yet. Um, and I think they're still trying to find themselves. And, you know, is it all about Eason? Uh, do, do we got to get, you know, ramp up our running game? Do, you know, who's our number one receiver? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think they're just trying to find that right now. You know, we're, where do where do all the pieces fit together? You know, we got pieces, but where do they all fit together? And that's always the hard part with any coach. You know, you got all those kids, and you you want them to mesh and be one machine, and they're not quite there yet. And I think uh, I think that'll come, you know, over over the closer to the end of the year, and be there next year, I think. But it, like I say, you know, you had they had Browning for all those years, four years, and they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly what he was what they had. And, um, so they had an identity and I think they're still searching for that identity, that hundred percent identity. This is who we are and this is what we need to do. That's great insight. Uh, thank you coach. Yeah. Um, yeah. and then speaking of those players kind of along those lines, we'd be curious to know who's the best player that you ever had the pleasure of coaching. <laughs> well, uh, you mentioned him earlier, Jake Plummer. There, uh, there's something about Jake, you know, Great athlete, but man, he had that little will to win that, uh, you know, we were talking about it the other night, you know, uh, with some of the people around him. He just, there was something about him, you know, you, you get a few of those people that come around once in a while and he's one of them that, uh, no matter what you call, he can make it right. If you call the wrong play, he'll make it the right play. And if you're down by two touchdowns before you look up, you're tied or you're ahead because he just wills things to happen. And uh, he was just one of those guys. You know, players loved him, coaches loved him, and uh, he was a great player. And thus, that's why he's going in the Hall of Fame. I think he's well-earned and uh, well-deserving of that uh, honor, that's for sure. But he was pretty good. I've had a lot of talented players in my days, but he was a special guy. And I had a, I had another guy, actually, uh, similar to Similar to Jake, but he was a running back. A guy by the name of Frank Hawkins, who played for me at Nevada Reno, was a uh, three-time 1AA All-American, led the nation in rushing uh, all three years, ended up playing for the Raiders and playing on the Super Bowl team. So, and he had what what we as coaches would call the it factor. You, you couldn't tell what it was. He wasn't faster than everybody, uh, but he was better than everybody. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Jake and, and uh, Frank Hawkins were probably two of the same same birds of a feather, I guess you'd say. Well, hey, go so, Nevada Reno, the Wolfpack, right? Yeah, Wolfpack, yeah. Go Wolfpack. Yeah, they were good. And then final question, uh, speaking of your former players, yeah. we, we, of course, here on the All We Hear is Purple podcast uh, refer to ourselves as the 
official or unofficial Cody Pickett fan club. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like coaching the great Cody Pickett? Oh, he was special, man. Cody was another special guy. I love Coach. He was as tough as they come. Tough. He was just a tough football player. Uh, uh, Cody, we used to do say this as coaches. You know, you go to recruit a guy and you say, you know, he's a receiver or he's a linebacker or he's a running back. And I used to say, hey, give me a football player. I want a football player. And Cody was a football player, just happened to be a quarterback. Because he could just, he was tough as nails and, and just a great kid. I, you know, I tried to recruit him to Arizona State because, you know, him and Jake being in the same neck of the woods, um, there was a connection there. But I got, I, I just got to him too late and he ended up at UW and then, Long story, I ended up getting to coaching him late in his career. So, uh, yeah, he was a, a wonderful guy to coach. And he's, he's another guy with a little it factor. You know, he's up there in Idaho now coaching, of all things, high school women's basketball. And I think he's won a couple state championships as the, the head basketball coach up there. So His legacy. He's, yeah, he's, a, he's great. Yeah, he's doing good. Cody was awesome, man. I love Cody. He's the best. Well, that's awesome. That, that really yeah. makes my day to hear. That's great. Oh, well, yeah, hey, yeah. Coach, that's going to do it for us. Um, hey, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to, to talk to us and Husky fans on the podcast. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Hope, hope uh, you're enjoying life and living well in, in Arizona. Yeah, no, it's great down here. Yeah, retirement is fun. Don't let anybody tell you different. Work towards it. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's good. I have a ball, so... Well, hey, great talking to you, Robbie, and thanks for calling and, and thinking of me. And uh, I hope all goes well and stay warm back there. Thank you so much, Coach. It was great to talk to you, okay. too. Okay, man. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. You have a great one. Bye. Bye-bye. So thank you, Rob. That was excellent, at least I'm assuming, because I haven't heard it yet as of time of this <laughs> recording. But it, all indications are that it was just an excellent interview, one of the best interviews that I'm aware of that I haven't heard so far. Any any thoughts on the interview from you, Gaby? Oh, well, Rob is just so charming. I mean, how could you? I, 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 <laughs> that was that was uh, I'm not a good actor. Uh, no, I'm sure it was beautiful. Nay. Majestic. Majestic. That's the right word. So let's give our recommendations for the most entertaining non-football thing. You mentioned that you zoned out on Saturday and avoided football. Mm -hmm. I would uh, probably not recommend uh, delivering a vase to Bellingham. So if you've got anything more interesting than that. Uh, <laughs> you put respect on Bremerton's name. I do love Bremerton. I do. I, I, love I, I do too. I like kind of... I like just kind of whatever cities. I've learned that the last few years about myself. I like kind of <laughs> shitty cities. They're my thing. Anyways, uh, sorry, I interrupted you. Go on. Well, yeah. Uh, so what other than the vase delivery caught your eye over the last week? Um, over the last week? Oh, hey, I'm just going to plug. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to plug uh, Seattle International Comedy Competition again because they had their first preliminary week last week um who advanced uh andrew packer from vancouver he's really funny and just a nice dude um adam pazzi from portland um oh oh andrew frank who he's a recent seattle comic and 
Uh, there's one other woman who I am picturing her, but can't remember her name. So she advanced and then one other dude. And then this, the second week of preliminaries is just starting tonight, I believe. Um, and you guys should go check that out because everyone in it is really funny. The end. Um, and then I forget what my other thing was. I need to come more prepared. This has been like three weeks in a row where you've asked me for a recommendation and I go, I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I will offer one on my end. I've been uh, digging back through the archives of this TV show that actually my dad uh, originally recommended to me called Alone. And it's it's a survival competition where they drop 10 people in, a, in remote locations and just leave them there with cameras until they have to leave. Like they get too sick or they go crazy and then they have to call and leave and they just use all the footage of the people uh, shooting themselves in the wild to cobble together a TV show. So there's no narration. There are no like contrived challenges or anything. It's just people like trying to build shelters and like create traps and avoid pumas and stuff. Uh, I think it's a discovery channel and there are six seasons of it and all of them are available on demand. It's, it's really strange. I don't like very many reality type shows or, or competitions like that, but this is very different thing. And it, it's like these people being pushed to the edge of their, psychological capabilities to kind of like hold it all together and it's very fun to watch that sounds wait i have a question um you say until they go crazy or are sick or whatever what about um you also mentioned or if there's a puma etc like <laughs> do they if you're in the middle of a bear attack for example like do you have time to call your producers and be like hey get me like how does that work well, they, everybody does there? have a sat phone and they have a crew with a helicopter i think it takes them like 20 minutes to get to you i've never seen someone mauled by a wild animal on the show i haven't watched all the seasons of it there was somebody who built a shelter and then there were wolverines scratching at the shelter overnight and and he just gave up the next day and called for rescue uh before the wolverines ate him or death or whatever I mean, even, uh, so it's it's a, a real danger yes even even if the helicopter can get there in 20 minutes i i'm not an expert but i feel like a puma can do a lot of damage in 20 minutes yeah, I will admit I've spent a decent amount of time thinking about the liability waivers that the show must put together to let people on it because it seems like there's a much higher risk of death in this show than in, in most TV shows. Yeah, they don't even have bear girls with them to pee on their ankles or when they get a jellyfish sting or whatever or drink their own pee. What's the thing that he does? Drinking pee. Do they drink pee? Wait, don't tell me that's a spoiler. I'm not going to watch it. Maybe I will watch it. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to spoil it for all of the people who will definitely go straight to Discovery Channel on demand and start listening. Mm -hmm. Start watching some pee drinking. Yeah, pee drinking. I hate, I hate that those words just came out of my mouth. Yeah, I don't think sad. that I don't remember seeing that on the show, but it probably has happened. I don't know. If you're that dehydrated, I don't know if it would help that much. Well, only one way to find out. Continue watching season after season and see oh. who drinks their own pee. I thought you were going to say, only way to find out, go drink your pee. But oh, I'm glad yeah. you didn't, because I don't want to. Anyway, I think we've exhausted <laughs> um, all of the possible things that we could talk about, because we're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. So with that, thank you to producer Rob for that 
what we assume is a really excellent, magnificent interview with former coordinator John Pettis. Uh, thank you, Gaby, for uh, hanging in there, even uh, after a very boring game with no game coming up next. And we will be so ne- back next week to do a very in-depth preview of the Colorado Buffaloes. Heck yeah. Oh, and Ralphie the Buffalo just retired, so yeah. that be, be a topic. We want Ralphie to 6, yeah. Yeah. All right. So stay tuned next week for a lot of Ralphie talk. All Ralphie talk all the time. Bye.